Hello and welcome to One Hour Point Weekly, where we bring together a variety of perspectives to discuss the biggest stories of the week and decide what our point, or if in fact there are no point at all. Please, if you like what you hear, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at What Our Point. Today is Tuesday, October 13th. I have here Nicholas Rodman as the sole guest today. Howdy. Um, um, and Nick is, Nick, stop playing with your keys. Just sit down. <laughs> okay. I will. So, okay. So Nick, what did you uh since we last spoke, I guess the uh the, the vice presidential debate went down. Um what else happened? Trump has now recovered. We're barreling toward the election. What did you uh what did you think of the of the vice presidential debate? I actually didn't even watch it. I just watched the highlights. I kinda wish I did now though. I wanted to see that fly land on Pence's head. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, no one, the vice presidential debates traditionally are inconsequential, but I found it to be very boring and normal compared to the presidential debate. I'm trying to think of the highlights besides the fly. Yeah, not much to report. Both sides claim victory. I don't, I, you know, again, they're very inconsequential. You know, from a national security perspective, I was on Team Pence, but from a COVID response perspective, I was on Team Harris. So it, it kind of varied. Gotcha. I mean, I can imagine... What Trump, what uh, Pence said, basically Trump light, trying to not say anything controversial, but also back up his points. And basically, Trump is doing a fine job. He's making America great again, again. It's just an amazing strategy. So, do you think that? Um, I do think that people are a little bit worried more in this election than a, nor- a normal election that the next president could pass away in office. So I do think that there has been a little bit more um, attention placed on the vice presidential pick. So I'm not sure a debate is going to necessarily change how someone feels about it. But I do feel like now both sides are pulling out the last stops of sort of base rattling strategies to get things going. And it seems to be working. Like the other the other story that I that happened in the last week was the attempted kidnapping of the governor of Michigan, which is always a good sign leading into an election. Um, I don't Christ. know. I remember the the name of the group was called the, I think it was the Wolverine Watchmen. The entire thing had this um, sort of cooked up in a, in a back room meth lab or, or in someone's Call of Duty gaming room feel to it. I don't know, Nick, do you, you as, a, as an Army Reserve member, um, are um, exposed to a lot of people that I feel like could be in militias? How do you, how, how did you see this plot panning out? And, and what do you, what would you do differently if, if you were going to start your own militia? Um, <laughs> God, you threw a lot. So I think the Wolverine reference is, is A, the, the Michigan uh, football team, but two, I think it's a reference to like the 1980s classic Red Dawn, which was a a movie about the Soviets invading the United States. I see. Um, which was like a I forgot the name of the director, Eastern European, but he was a, a rabid anti-communist. Uh, classic movie. I think Patrick Swayze's in it. But I, I certainly, if I were to start a militia, again, this is uh, tongue in cheek. This isn't serious. I would never do that. I'm loyal to the United States. Uh, but if I were, I, I certainly wouldn't do it in the United States. I think I would do it somewhere else. And I would kind of have like a free market, like Milton Friedman. I'd call it like the Milton Friedman deregulators or something like that. That would be, be the name of my militia. 
this. We'd go that about. Doesn't seem very enticing. I don't feel like you get many recruits, or maybe you would. You get these like very boring button-up sort of white-collar <laughs> uh, libertarian anarchists. Have you? I mean, I do feel like I, maybe you're not as exposed to this as some, but there are these worrying trends. I bet you've actually heard of this. Have you heard of the book, The Turner Diaries? Yeah. It's like I mean, a, it's... Uh, it's been cited by every single, like, you know, the Timothy McVeigh, Oklahoma, you know, I think there's some school shooters, and then I, like Columbine, I think, might have followed it. Yeah. Have you, the, the most recent iteration of that sort of undercurrent of American uh, rebellious, homegrown coup d'etat white nationalist is, have you heard of um, Bronze Age Pervert? No. It's a guy on Twitter that also writes about this second coming second revolution where technology will collapse and we'll sort of go back to this apocalyptic and and i'm sure you've heard of the uh the boogaloo right this, yeah, this yeah, like, yeah unfortunately yeah yeah i mean i i don't view any of these movements as very serious i mean the fbi has classified several of them as as uh sort of domestic terrorist hate groups or whatever but you know and they should be I mean, I refer to like the 90s when this all started, like Ruby Ridge, mm. uh, Waco, and then sort of what culminated in the Oklahoma City bombing. Is it, it's Unfortunately, it is a trend in our country, but I, I sort of think like COVID has kind of stirred the pie where everyone's at home, you know, has either unemployed or has nothing to do. And it, it just kind of makes people go crazy. Um, but uh, unfortunately, I think there there has been sort of this consequence where these groups have kind of come more into the, have gained more national attention. I mean, do you uh, think the, the the simple answer would be that Trump has allowed by his whatever, they're good people on both sides type comments yeah. for for people to feel OK with this? I mean, what did you think about the uh, the Proud Boys comment? Or, I mean, it just seems like there are so many little pockets of this type of stuff everywhere that um, it wouldn't it wouldn't be too surprising if there was a contested election. There were more. Gretchen Whitmer plots all of a sudden. I wonder I wonder how much uh how many of these homegrown hodgepodge militias and paramilitary organizations there are around the US. It kind of scares you, but at the same time it makes you think that uh these people are so amateur compared to how the actual military operates, right? Can you imagine yes. the people working yeah. on one of these cases as they like follow them or like, or they're listening in on their ridiculous conversations in there. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, I think the, the FBI did a good job at, at like doing an undercover sting to arrest these people. Uh, unfortunately, I think several of them were, I think two of them were Marines or something at one point. I mean, they're, you know, junior enlisted kind of not seemingly not very intelligent individuals. And the danger is like a sort of lone wolf, you know, I'm not, I'm not afraid of some like overarching rebellion against the federal government, but I, I, I do think that there, you know, there's, there's been cases of like two or three people committing an atrocity in the name of some greater cause. You know, I look at Timothy McVeigh in the nineties and 95 and, and all these, these folks in the, in the nineties that uh, kind of had a similar ideology, but you know, Timothy McVeigh was unfortunately an army veteran as well. He's a veteran of the Gulf war, but again, like very junior enlisted, like wasn't, not very high up in the military. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but I don't view it as a as a nationwide threat. I think they're going to be kind of one-offs. You know, I think of like the Comet Pizza guy for our view or listeners. Uh, Comet Pizza. Pizza Gate. Yeah, Pizza Gate is a, is a pizza shop on Connecticut Avenue in D.C. 
that uh, I think some conspiracy theorists on 4chan thought that there was a child abduction ring going on and somehow affiliated with Hillary Clinton and some lunatic showed up with an, an AR-15, you know, started shooting up in the air around it and trying to, you know, find this, uncover this plot, this undercovers child sex ring. Little did he know that the pizza place did not even have a basement and he was like quickly apprehended and, and uh, you know, I think was like remorseful of it, of his crime. But just there's, so, you know, there's loonies out there. So do you think, though, that I guess when Trump was first elected president, a lot of people with military connections or even government, sort of the State Department, were pro-Trump partially because of the argument that he was going to drain the swamp or whatever. He was going to change things in Washington. And now that there's been four years of him, do you think that sort of his activities allowing more of this stuff to happen. Or even the other thing I was thinking about as we were talking about this was, um, do you remember the story about the, or the, the whole criminal case with that Navy SEAL, whatever that guy's name was? Um, yeah, yeah, Gallagher. Yeah, Eddie Gallagher. He, um, yeah. where Trump basically said he was going to pardon him, even though many different SEALs came out saying that they witnessed him committing war crimes. So I feel like, Trump might have alienated the military community at this point. What is your sense of that? I don't know. I mean, I, I, again, meet my opinions. These are my opinions and my opinions alone on this issue. Yeah, I mean, in general, I'm not as familiar. My, my The specifics of the case I would reference is like New York Times profile of it. But yeah, I, I, I think the chain of command usually works in these cases. And, and I, I sort of would leave it at that. And, and I, you know, I think the military does do a good job of policing its own. You know, I think the Gallagher case was more to do with a rules rules of engagement issue in in, in Iraq. Um, but do you think that this has turned military families away from Trump, or do you think this things like this don't really bother them? They might actually, some people might prefer a president like that because they're like, oh fuck it, we can get away with anything. Well, I don't. I, I I'd be hard pressed to find anyone in the military that believes that that they can get away with quote unquote, get away with anything. Yeah, I I, I, uh, I don't know if there's been any significant polling of people in the military from a electoral. I mean, ten, ten, Tennessee, it's, it's been, military tends to be a much more conservative organization. You know, I've met the full spectrum of people politically in the military. I've met very left-wing people and very right-wing people. So it's kind of a dichotomy of the of the society that we live in, which is nice, which is what it's supposed to be. But that being said, I think generally, like, the military tends to be a conservative institution. Uh, How many vote? like, what percentage of American voters are either in the military or even connected to the military? I wonder um, what, if it's even that big of a proportion, like, how much that... I think I have to look it up. I could be wrong. There's about 2 million active duty troops and about, I think, like, uh, I'd say maybe around 4 million people total are in the military. It's like 1 or 2% of the total population, so it's, it's, it's not that big. I mean, that's not small either, though. No, but and it's dispersed. I mean, so you don't have you have like clusters of military installations that actually impact like Florida, for example. Florida has a lot of military people in the Panhandle or California, San Diego area has a lot of Navy Marine Corps. And that could impact because you have a lot of retirees that previously served that retire around those installations. North Carolina, Camp Lejeune. Fort Bragg, too, in North Carolina. So you have these, like, giant installations that have a lot of military retirees around them, and that can impact politics. From, like, a defense policy perspective, I would say the Republican Party tends to be 
in favor, traditionally more in favor of like DOD funding and, and readiness funding, et cetera, and, and kind of a larger force structure. Yeah, they love guns. The Republicans just well, love it. I mean, it's not guns. It's like battalions. It's ships. It's aircraft. It's like a larger military. Yeah, it's um, like war toys. War toys writ large. I got sure, you. Okay. Uh, but you know, I, and they're they're. I've met liberals. I've met progressives in the military, which I more power sure. to them because they're. I just feel a, like almost everyone. Soon there will be even larger consensus that there needs to be. If not military cuts, military rejiggering. I'm sure the the defund the police is mm. is going to move slowly into defund our I military. I don't think so. I think you're seeing a resurgent China and a and and you know the Democrats complain about Russia meddling in our election, which I believe did occur. And what what would be the appropriate response to Russia meddling in our election? And from think, taking money away from sort of Halliburton or whatever and giving it to cybersecurity firms, which sure. probably okay. Well, I don't think Halliburton does much business in Russia. I think that it's it's a combination of deterrence, which involves the military in Ukraine, in places like Syria, in places where Russia is meddling locally, and in in violating country sovereignties like but, crimea like some crimea, where we but, really protect and and hold up the values for which mm. we pretend to defend it's just i find the whole military conversation hilarious because it's all based on this idealism of saving things saving democracy and then there are these blatant and obvious examples of when that conversation doesn't even come up it's just like ah okay well like whatever we lost one little bit. It's just, it, it feels very disingenuous. And that makes you think that the system is sort of beyond its own control. It almost feels like healthcare, where like there's people that are incentivized to keep these supply chains going. And I think the American military sort of falls in that category. This is a larger conversation, but I, I do think that, uh, I don't know, Trump has sort of things going for him where, like I was saying, I think there's some people in the military that understand Trump wants to beef up everything and wants to saber rattle. But then there are other people who like Trump constantly railing against the deep state or whatever. Mm -hmm. The deep state is, are these like career government bureaucrats, right? So I think that's... So you think the deep state does exist? I think the deep state is just a... Like stupid term for organizations that are pretty obviously there. Like, I mean, the NSA and the FBI, that, those are the deep state, right? It's just people, career agents at these organizations that hate Trump or hate morons that don't want people to like take away. In those type of jobs, you really do, it seems like, have to behave by this like Bushido style code of ethics because or else it's so obvious how to exert your power and become a corruptible person. It's just like, it's, it's evidenced around the world every day. Sure. I mean, I, I, every, every agency has an IG and an inspector general, they have checks in place to curb, you know, they're, they're agencies have different standards, but I would think the, the DOJ for the most part has a higher standard. You don't think that that slowly over time has been worn away? I mean, now this being the pinnacle of that, where Trump has sort of actively not appointed people or appointed people that won't do their work. I don't know enough about it, but he seems to uh, not allow these inspectors general to have any 
oversight power? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know enough, but I, I, I for the most part, I think the system is working. I mean, I, I do think that it right, would we'll take a lot two months, longer than four years to undo system that system. Is, you don't think that there could be mass chaos in two months' time? With the election? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's going to radically change the fundamentals of our democracy, but yeah, unfortunately, I probably do think there'll be some some uproar, however it goes. What should we turn to? Let's just finish this baby off with some. Uh, do you want to talk about sports, Nick? Do you are you glad you want to talk about Armenia and Azerbaijan? Or? Oh right, okay, that's a that's an interesting one. I don't know anything about that. So explain to me what has been going on there. So you have two in the South Caucasus. You have three countries: Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan. The borders between Azerbaijan and Armenia are like chopped up. I think Azerbaijan has like an exclave, which is like a part of its territory that's disconnected from it from the main part of the country, yeah. which is called Nahichevan. And then between Nahichevan and Armenia in Azerbaijan is a territory called Nagorno-Karabakh, which is claimed by Azerbaijan and currently partially, for the most part, occupied by Armenian forces. And this is kind of the residual effects of the 91 Soviet Union breakup. And so Nagorno-Karabakh is it's called Artsakh by the Armenians. And it's been this sort of frozen conflict since 91. I think there was like a hot war in the like 93 or so. I could be wrong. But they periodically kind of lob artillery at each other. And it usually goes away. This time around, I think the Azerbaijanis were responding to some... It's unclear what actually started this. But from my understanding, I think the Azerbaijanis have tried to make a sort of a, a play at kind of forcing the Armenians back in that territory. Um, and is this is this like a political thing for Putin in any way, or why now? Uh, I don't know. I, I think that Turks, so the Azerbaij- Azerbaijan has good relations with Erdogan in Turkey, and so there's, 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 there's some school of thought that says that Erdogan kind of egged him on. Ilham well, Aliyev, who's the head of Azerbaijan, was kind of egged on by Erdogan. However, the Armenians, Armenia has a Russian military base in its territory. And sort of there's this odd, like, essentially Armenia potentially could get the backing of Putin. However, they had a, they kind of sort of had like a contested election several years ago, which they had kind of like a popular revolution where it's an anti-corruption advocate kind of won. This guy who took over from the, the predecessor's name was Serge Sargassian, I think, and he, he had been in power for a long time. And and so I think the he was sort of a pro-Russian guy, and I think the new guy is less pro-Russian, so the Russians are a little more apprehensive about helping him out. But Azerbaijan has strong ally in Turkey, and uh, surprisingly a strong, despite being a Muslim-majority nation, has strong partnership with Israel, and has its military is equipped with a lot of Israeli weapons, including UAVs. And so Azerbaijan has always is this, has been this sort of secular, secular, very secular Muslim country in the Caucasus, very like natural gas rich. And so the, it's you know I think from a traditionally like uh, not realist perspective, but from an, uh, a partnership perspective, I think the U.S. has better relations with Azerbaijan than it does with Armenia, partly because of that Russian military presence in Armenia. Makes sense. So they are more. Are the Armenians, because they fall into the Russian orbit 
and the Azerbaijanis because they sort of have an Israeli government backing that sort of oh, tur- Turkish. I mean, mostly Turkish and yeah, a, lo- a lot of other countries. Um, but Armenia, like- Armenia has a has a huge support network in the United States. So like Armenian Americans uh, are very supportive of Armenia for you know and have fought to you know. In Congress, for example, the a lot of Armenian organizations have advocated for the U.S. Congress recognizing the Armenian genocide, which took place in 1915 when the Ottomans murdered, uh, you know, 1.5 million people. You know, has has kind of much has kind of uh, prodded the Turkish government more than it's prodded the Azerbaijani government. But um, they it there is a strong like support network here. Sort of a um, somewhat of a a rickety scenario because if Azerbaijan is the aggressor in this case, which I don't know if that's the, if that's the case, I'm just learning about this from you, but um, it seems like Russia is the bear that shouldn't be poked in that region. So if it were the other way and, and Russia was the aggressor, it feels like it's just their slow process of, of eking out concessions. But in this, uh, in a scenario where Russia feels attacked that's where you always worry that the Russians will whatever pull whatever switch they've been waiting on and then launch their plan to take over that part of I'm just always I'm always uh, wowed by when I read about World War II how sort of the Germans and the French for years had been th- making these plans for assault and counter assault. They kind of just knew what was going to happen. They had read the future tea leaves and were like, this is going to happen at some point. It's not about when we're going to institute these plans, or I mean, how or if, but when. And I wonder uh, if there's sort of a grand plan that uh, Putin sees that he needs to execute sort of before he's out of office. And -hmm. if we're going to see some sort of iteration of that in the near future. When will he be out of office is another good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think he'll be in power until the 20, 2030s at the earliest. So, I mean, we, we, he's around for a long time, you know, considering that he he um, meddled with his own country's constitutional system and, and has enacted the removal of term limits. But I, I think the Russian, Russian foreign policy is a foreign policy of opportunism. They see an opportunity in expanding their power; they'll do it. They also have zero regard for human rights. So I think that if you any any action they take, uh, I, I usually tends to have a negative impact on global stability. You know, look at Crimea and you in eastern eastern Ukraine, Syria. Uh, they have a long history of of mucking things up, and I think. If they do become more aggressive in the South Caucasus, I think you'll see a, a, an escalation on the part of Turkey and other players in the region. Um, do the Armenians or Azerbaijanis make any of their own weapons, or are they totally imported? Mo- most of the weapons are like stuff that they've had since '91, so stuff that they've had when they were Soviet in the Soviet Union. Got it. Um, they've they've with sort of Azerbaijan's like natural gas wealth and oil wealth they've sort of been able to purchase more weaponry and they're a bigger country from a population perspective i mean it's it's unfortunate because you know so what are what are the primary weapons being used right now i'd say artillery tanks uavs but it you know i'm sort of um 
I'm sort of sympathetic. There's certain things that I'm sympathetic about from the Armenian perspective, and I'm certain certainly sympathetic to Azerbaijan. I think in the during the initial war in like the 19, in 1993, when they were kind of going through these territorial skirmishes, there were massacres on both sides. There was this Kojali massacre. Armenians massacred uh, ethnic Azeris and um, and so forth. So it's it's kind of this sort of ongoing brutal conflict that's been going on since since the early 90s. And I think Azerbaijan, Armenia in particular, has been disturbed. You know, has been disturbed by its its relationship with Russia. I think the Russians have kind of perpetuated a lot of this culture of corruption within the this local government. And I think recently they've made some steps forward into combating that. So do you not think that if if you want to sort of remove spheres of influence like that, like the Russian bases in Armenia, from the Russian perspective, they need these regional regional countries under their military umbrella or under their military power structure. And in order for a detente to be de-escalated, doesn't the U- U.S. also have to make concessions? So I guess this goes back to a co- conversation from a much a much earlier podcast about sort of where America stands on what escalation or de-escalation conveys to your enemy. If, you're, if we have a sort of a strike first or a strike second mentality, it seems like that's where these things always go. Like in the Obama era, it was about negotiating where these missiles were these like cruise missiles right it was there was some base we had where we were putting it closer and closer to russia yeah i don't i don't i mean i think in ukraine's case the russia economically would have benefited if ukraine had joined the european union or had a stronger trade partnership with the european union and i don't i don't believe in this the notion of a sphere of influence is very like 19th century i think if Ukraine wants to join an international organization, they can. If they want to join NATO, they, you know, that's further down the road. That discussion is, is not anywhere near maturity, but they're a sovereign nation. They can make decisions for themselves. They can have free and fair elections and make those decisions and have referendums, et cetera. And so it's not, I mean, but they're why, obviously why should, sort of why a should satellite Putin of have Russia. Veto power over what happens in domestically within Ukraine? And, and in fact, I think he's somehow working contrary to his own country his people's interests which would be a a neighbor part of the eu which would make increase their purchasing power to buy russian goods which would help benefit mutually be beneficial for the russian economy and he chose this sort of art you know draconian archaic 19th century worldview about how ukraine is essentially a colony of russia and they they acted on it and the same goes for georgia in 2008 they bit off abkhazia and south ossetia and potentially this could be a, a hot zone in, in the South Caucasus if they do decide to intervene in Armenia or, you know, in Belarus, which uh, has had ongoing pro Don't you think a lot of the protests. reason why they say they are justified in taking these bits of land is because of the presence of NATO and American troops in those regions? So in order to get ourselves out of this 19th century thinking, you have to demilitarize the regions so that the U.S. could then act more like an honest broker? I think if we were to demilitarize the region, I literally think we'd be handing the region over to the Russian military. Like, they don't... don't Aren't you just living in a totally militarized world then? Like, there's no going back from that sort of levels of escalation. It just seems like... I've never been there, or, and so I have no bearing talking about it, but you would imagine living in a place where militarization only seems to go up 
is not in is is never to the benefit of the people in that region. So it's just it seems like such an obviously ridiculous way to conduct policy, foreign policy, or in this case, domestic policy, to like constantly be pinging back and forth between these superpowers that see the only solution as amping up the ante every round it's just well, yeah i mean i think it's the, the, those decisions are made are going to be made in the kremlin and not in dc and i think that's this fallacy of like we have to de-escalate for the sake of de-escalation i think sometimes you need to escalate to de-escalate and i think this uh this notion that foreign policy is based off of relationships I think is a very superficial belief. I think that foreign policy should be based off of values, principles, and interests. You know, Trump claims to have good relations with Kim Jong-un, and our relationship with North Korea is probably the worst it's ever been. It's rolled out with a new ICBM during their 75th anniversary of the Workers' Party parade a couple weeks, a week ago. Like, I mean, it, 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 uh, it, it just doesn't, relationships only go so far. And I think that with the Russians, I think the decisions made in the Kremlin to intervene somewhere aren't based off of whether or not the U.S. is recklessly arming an army or anything like that. It's 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 just a plain and simple opportunity. We see that the U.S. is weak here, so we're going to intervene. You know, we we're poking holes in certain places. We you know we want Georgia and and all these places to kind of be embroiled in these frozen conflicts forever to guarantee that these countries, you know, won't be, will never be successful from a security perspective or will never join the EU or never join any type of economic union with, a, with another country. They, you know, we want to make these countries dependent on Russia. And that's well, their strategic aim. That's, that's Putin's strategic aim. It just feels like when you say that Russia wants to move into the places where U.S. is weak, you're completely talking about militarily weak. You're not talking about, like, the cultural or... And the U.S., if it didn't have strength there, I feel like I feel like we've reached a tipping point in our society where our military presence is not as welcome as it was in the past. Like, in the past, you would go places and you would hear that people are very happy that the U.S. is this arbiter. Everything has taken a massive hit from eight years of isolationist Obama, who sort of didn't want to engage in a lot of these conflicts, and to an extent made that worse in some regions by making policies more covert or switching to JSOC and drone strikes and all this stuff. But then for more years of Trump sort of mixing things up even farther, like making Ukraine this huge political cudgel. And I just really don't, I see this as an unbelievable clusterfuck, especially Russia going forward. Like our relationship with Russia has become very bizarre because Trump seems very okay with a lot of what Russia is doing. Hasn't seemed to, it seems like the military establishment, if you're part of this deep state or whatever, might be more upset than anything about how Russia, how Trump might, you know, own $400 million to Russian banks or banks funded by Russian oligarchs or whatever. It does seem like it's a it's a brave new world of our relationship with Russia. And it doesn't even feel like a cold war to be honest because Russia isn't it's fallen so much in terms of its economic and cultural influence around the world. It it doesn't it's it feels like it's they're now this 
you know, sneaky backstage assassin type personality. Well, it has the GDP that's smaller than Italy's right now. I mean, it it definitely bats above its weight. I mean, it, from a military perspective, I would view it as a threat. From a cybersecurity perspective, I'd view it as a, as a threat. From an economic perspective, no, I don't, you know, other than Rus- Russian vodka or, um, <laughs> you know, arms sales, I don't think they export much other than, you know, like Kapersky's, you know, virus protection, which is obviously, uh, I find that to be just ironic to begin with. But they're, they're it's a it's a petro state and oil is is because of domestic fracking there's not a demand in the US for for russian oil or for 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 that much oil just traded on the global market so they're 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 in the pits economically and i think putin's looking to expand as a as political cover to to provide justification for his reign so he's sort of giving giving the russian people a you know a boogeyman or you know, whether that's the U.S. or Europe. Wait, or isn't that a great argument for de-escalation, though? Why should a country with such a small GDP mm. be allowed to keep so many dangerous weapons and to create such a threat because of the just the fluke of history that when we decided to negotiate the de-escalation treaties, they had this this many nuclear weapons or missiles or tanks but, or whatever it is. I mean, we we're still in. Salt, and I mean, we're still in these treaties for the most part. Trump has left the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear, um, Intermediate Range Nuclear Missile Treaty, uh, Forces Treaty. Forgive my, I butchered that, but it's a treaty that that uh, had jurisdiction, essentially eliminated the U.S.'s Intermediate Range Nuclear Missile Fleet Force, whatever you call it, and it eliminated the Russian equivalent. However. In 2008-2007 time frame, the Russians tested a nuclear-capable cruise missile, which violated the treaty. And they have continued to test that missile and perpetually have violated the treaty to the point where I think Trump justifiably left that treaty. I think any president, regardless of political party, would have left that treaty because it would have been, essentially we were in a treaty with ourselves because the Russians had perpetually violated it since 2008. And so it, it's just whether or not we were actually like the the notion that like oh if we just de-escalate Trump Putin won't have a boogeyman anymore he'll create it I mean they're the Russian propaganda machine is incredibly effective at creating creating that regardless of whether or not we're there or not and I'd rather have us be there to guarantee Russia's neighbors sovereignty than than not be there and have the Russians continue to bite off territory left and right if you liked like cakes and biscuits and things more than you liked guns and tanks and bombers i bet you would agree with de-escalation i just think cakes you, and biscuits who, who eats biscuits uh the british people that i watched that's on true. the great british baking show oh, that's which true, yeah. i've been binge watching recently because it's truly remarkable how just genuine and nice people were or i guess they still are even in in britain during this terrible era it's what amazing how uh just right? mean. he's kind of mean yeah, but you need you need the the one you you can't judge niceness off of anything if everyone's nice. You gotta like have some sort of barometer of meanness. It keeps it real. I think Mary. Are you watching the Mary Berry? Which the, one is who is is she the original? Yeah. Judge? Yeah. I need to watch the new ones. Yeah, it was really good. It would make me wanna. I think they had one like dome cake that was had like marzipan in it. Everything has marzipan. 
That's true. I love marzipan. Wow, we talked for way longer than I even thought. Sorry. <laughs> Just want to let our few listeners know that I love marzipan. My sister <laughs> loves marzipan, too. Shout out to Theo. <laughs> I don't know. We're We're doomed. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Please tune in to next week, where we will discuss the rapidly growing conspiracy theory that Dan Beckshaw is really Pete Buttigieg in disguise. What are you doing? Are you fixing the gate? Uh, no. Yeah, sorry. I was like fixing my keys. They're kind of uh, uh, topsy turvy, kind of. They're all over the place. This is um, a great time to fix your keys on a podcast. <laughs> sorry. <laughs>